Hey everyone, Melissa here. Welcome to episode 39 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that May is an exciting month here at Raw Talk because we are going live at the end of the month. That's right, we're hosting a live science policy and communication event on May 30th here in downtown Toronto. The event is called It's Not You, It's The Situation. And you'll have to forgive us for our terrible puns. We're scientists, not comedians. The event will feature two panels, one on science policy and public science literacy, and the other on new methods of science communication, like this podcast. Both panels will feature various experts and stakeholders in these fields, and we're celebrating with a ton of giveaways, which you know if you follow us on social media at Raw Talk Podcast. There will also be a networking session afterwards where you can come and meet the team and our speakers. Head over to our event webpage, rawtalklive.com, for more information, a full list of our panelists, and of course, the link to register. And if you can't make it, no worries. We'll be recording and releasing both panel discussions as episodes in August. Okay, now back to the show. The reason we love talking to the faculty here at U of T is because they're doing amazing work to improve health outcomes for people in Canada, and they're also involved in sharing that knowledge with the rest of the world and improving outcomes globally. Today's guest does exactly that. Dr. Sameet Gupta is an oncologist scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children here in Toronto. Dr. Gupta's work focuses on identifying and improving the outcomes of vulnerable subpopulations of children with cancer. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, the Institute for Health Policy, Management and Evaluation, and the Institute of Medical Science at U of T. He chairs the Unit for Policy and Economics Research in Childhood Cancer, or PERC. He's Associate Chair of the Lancet Oncology Commission on Sustainable Pediatric Cancer Care, and he's also helping to design the next generation of clinical trials for children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. Oh, and he's only officially been a clinician scientist for four years. So enough from me. Let's hear from Dr. Gupta. for joining us today, Dr. Gupta. No problem. We always like to start with a bit of an origin story, and it seems like you're a bit of a U of T lifer. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about taking you back, hopefully not PTSD, to your medical school interviews, but why medicine and why did you decide to go into pediatric oncology? Sure. So I actually wasn't thinking medicine at all when I was doing my undergrad at Queen's. I was thinking more either education or research, but I did a lot of work with kids, volunteer stuff, obviously. And then I actually ended up getting an opportunity where I volunteered at a pediatric oncology clinic in Kingston and had a bunch of interesting experiences in the first couple of weeks there. And that's what sort of shuttled me immediately into not just medicine, but then eventually pediatrics and pediatric oncology as well. Nice, nice. So you came to U of T, you did your residency here, you started a fellowship, and then you decided to do a PhD at the School of Health Policy. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do a PhD? Because you had already done so much training and then you were in your fellowship. And so why did you make that decision? Sure. So when I was a resident towards the latter half of my residency, actually, I started to do a little bit of research um, with a couple of great supervisors here. And the more I did, the more I loved. And so I continued that throughout my fellowship as well. What kind of research did you do? So actually, the first type of research I did was international. I had a opportunity to 
do some investigations into causes of treatment failure of children with leukemia in Central America. Mm-hmm. There was a group, there is a group, I should say, of pediatric oncologists there who have done some amazing work at improving outcomes for children with all types of cancer in Central America. And they had started working with Dr. Lillian Sung, one of the oncologists here. And it's funny, I actually just was in a coffee line with her serendipitously, and we were having a conversation, and she knew I wanted to go into oncology, and she said, so what are you thinking now? And I actually had said, like, yes, oncology is still very much what I want to do, but I'm a little bit doubtful because I like international health as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she sort of stopped, and she goes, you didn't speak Spanish by chance, do you? I'm like, actually, I do. She's like, no, no. way. <laughs> I just got, like, literally two weeks prior to that, she had been contacted by this group in Central America to do some research with their local data. And she's like, do you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. Sounds good. And can you just do that during your fellowship or or during Uh, your residency? During residency? Yeah. So, you know, it's not easy Mm -hmm. because there is some protected time for research and residency and fellowship, but it's not a lot. So it's a lot of... on the order of days and not... Yeah. So you have little electives here and there, um, which never end up being at the right time for you to actually do the research anyway. So you end up doing a lot of it on your own on On evenings and weekends and things like that. But loved it, came up with some really cool results, got to go to Central America a couple of times and meet the oncologist there. And so then continued to do that during my fellowship and started to do other types of research as well. And then realized that if I wanted research to be a big part of my career, then especially in this day and age, I was going to need to get a PhD. not just for the letters, although in this day and age, that's definitely no, helpful, but, but also exactly to get the methods and the skills, um, etc. So much to many of my family members and friends, more, um, more school mortification, <laughs> like I still remember mentioning it to my parents for the first time, They're like, so you are a doctor already right like <laughs> Did yeah you get i know your license? but <laughs> yeah um but yeah so finished my fellowship started to do a master's at ihpme here at u of t and then rapidly transferred into the phd and so completed the phd then and was your phd like was your thesis on the same sort of project so, no actually i was also interested in local health policy type of research as well and outcomes type of research so actually started working with the institute to of Clinical Evaluative Sciences, or the unfortunately acronymed ISIS. Yes. Anyways, (laughs) um, and they, for people who don't know, have this amazing data infrastructure where... At Sunnybrook. At Sunnybrook, where they have basically all the health services data that is generated every day just for the day-to-day running of the healthcare system. And that works because Canada, or Ontario, is a single... Exactly right. No matter what physician you go to see for a medically necessary service in Ontario, somehow a billing record is generated for OHIP and similar things for inpatient records and emergency room visits. And copies of those all go to the Institute Mm -hmm. and are linked individually and anonymously, obviously, Mm -hmm. to protect privacy and confidentiality. But then there's all sorts of amazing research that you can do with that Mm -hmm. as well. So my PhD was actually using that data infrastructure to try to categorize measurements of of what we call time to diagnosis. So could we use that to figure out for children with leukemia specifically, when did they start having symptoms? How long did it take for them to actually get diagnosed? Mm -hmm. Who had more lengthy or less lengthy diagnosis periods? And did that actually have any effect on their ultimate chance of survival? Mm -hmm. So that was essentially the PhD. So, you know, it's all data and clinical research. And during my PhD, even though it wasn't part of my formal PhD, I continued to do quite a lot of the international research as well as I still do now. But the PhD itself was more of this health services with the Institute. 
And you're still doing that now as a clinician investigator. Yeah, so, so I'm uh, appointed to the cancer research program at the Institute as well. Nice. Um, so when did you become a clinician investigator at SickKids? So that would have been at the beginning of 2014. So, oh, so just over four new. years uh, ago. Yep. Still sort of fresh. Nice. Feeling less fresh every day, but yes, technically <laughs> still fresh. Okay. So let's focus a little bit more on your main research study. So I really like how on the SickKids website, they put your sort of broad research goal is to identify and improve outcomes of vulnerable subpopulations uh, in children with cancer. But you do pretty different things within that realm. So can we talk a little bit about, I think you have three sort of main projects. Yeah, Uh, sure. So, you know, one of those three main projects is carrying on from the formal PhD work I did. Mm -hmm. So again, that amazing data structure that the Institute has, there are all sorts of very clinically and policy relevant questions that one can ask from that. So, you know, a couple of the ongoing grants and projects that we have right now is, for example, looking at the mental health outcomes of children who survived childhood cancer as they transition to adulthood and beyond, mm-hmm. right? And so if you get treated and survive your leukemia as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old, we know that that may have a risk of certain physical late effects, as we call them, in mm-hmm. your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, but there's much less information about the long-term mental health related effects. And is that mm-hmm. a large portion of children who survive cancer or? Yeah, sorry. No, it's a really good question. So thankfully, yes. So in this day and age, over 80% of children in Canada or the US or Western Europe who are diagnosed with cancer will achieve long-term cure. That cure for a proportion of them comes at a cost, both because of the cancer and because of the treatments we mm-hmm. use. And so our goal is not only to cure that final 20%, but also to use less burdensome cures mm-hmm. for the 80% as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the mental health is one example. We do things like looking at outcomes of siblings and and mothers as well, right? And looking at the whole support system. Exactly. And then you can do everything from, you know, we have another grant right now where we're actually just looking at the cost of care. So if you have a child with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common leukemia and the most common cancer in kids, actually, if you use the health services data, how much does it actually cost to treat that child in Ontario? And, you know, that's not a way that most of us clinicians are used to thinking, but there are all, are all of these really new, crazy techniques of treating childhood leukemia, which are extraordinarily exciting, all sorts of different immunotherapy, but they're also incredibly expensive mm-hmm. as well. So people are going to start asking cost and cost effectiveness type of questions. questions yeah. And so having that baseline cost data is really important as it turns out as well. Mm-hmm. So so there's a whole spectrum of sort of research health services on. research that you can do with that data structure. Okay. Can we back up a bit to the mental health studies that sure. you've been doing? So what proportion of kids who survive cancer actually have mental health issues? As yeah. They, as so they I did this work in conjunction with Paul Nathan, one of the other oncologists here, and we had a IMS master's student, actually Alex Nackman, who took on that question as his uh, master's project. And what he found was that essentially, not really surprisingly, survivors of childhood cancer are at higher risk of adverse mental health outcomes than the general population. That's not to say that they all have that risk. Mm -hmm. There's a good chunk of survivors who don't seem to have those, but 
there is an elevated risk in some subpopulations. We also looked at severe mental health events, which we defined as emergency room visits or hospitalizations due to mental health Mm -hmm. reasons. And survivors were at an increased risk of that as well. The really interesting finding we found there was that the younger you were when you were diagnosed with your cancer, the higher your risk was. So that if you were under the age of five when you were diagnosed with cancer, by the time you hit sort of 28 years of age, more than 15% of those survivors had suffered an emergency room or a hospitalization due to a mental health reason. So that was actually a pretty surprising finding for us. Hey, it's Kat. For this episode, I got to sit down with Dr. Vicki Forster, a cancer researcher at SickKids and a survivor of childhood cancer. Vicky is an avid advocate for improving the lives of children who have or have survived cancer with a focus on the long-term effects of cancer treatment. So Vicky, you, in addition to being a cancer researcher, you are also a cancer survivor. And as a child, you were diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And you experienced a very scary side effect during the course of your treatment. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So the side effect that I experienced was called stroke-like syndrome. And it's something which is fairly well recognized now in the pediatric oncology community. But back then, I was actually on the first UK clinical trial, Mm -hmm. which actually replaced cranial radiotherapy with a drug called methotrexate. And it was injected intrathecally. And the idea of this part of the treatment was to get rid of the leukemia stem cells, which could come back and cause relapse. Mm -hmm. And so I was on the first clinical trial where they got rid of the radiotherapy because, of course, the side effects of any radiotherapy are quite severe and wanted to replace it with this drug. Mm -hmm. So at that time, nobody really knew quite what to expect. And we now know that around a couple of percent or maybe 1% of children with ALL will have this stroke-like syndrome. And essentially what happened to me was perhaps the day after I had this injection, it wasn't my first injection of the drug, I'd had several before. Mm -hmm. Um, I went home one night and I was playing board games with my family and I just became Mm -hmm. very clumsy and started laughing hysterically. Mm -hmm. And my mum thought I was Mm -hmm. just playing up you know I was an eight or nine year old uh, kid and so she sent me to bed and uh, I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and tried to get out of my bed and I fell over and Mm -hmm. I was completely paralyzed down my left hand side so I called my mum in obviously it wasn't painful it Mm -hmm. just I had no coordination and I smiled at her and she looked at me in horror because one side of my face went up and the other Mm -hmm. one down I said I feel funny and very quickly she rang an ambulance Um, I got shuttled into the hospital in in central London and I remember at that time this was the mid-1990s my doctors were all at a conference in Paris Mm -hmm. and so they got flown back from Paris to London and I remember sitting in this hospital bed with maybe six doctors around me Mm -hmm. um, kind of going oh god grief what's happened to our patient because of course at that time oncologists didn't you know they knew a lot but they didn't have the internet so they couldn't instantly google what on earth is this what What has happened to my patient and um, I think it was maybe a day or two and my parents were obviously incredibly worried thinking oh good grief we're gonna have a half paralyzed child if you know if she even survives this this cancer and then uh, I just began kind of moving my fingers on my Mm. left hand and my dad had gone to the bathroom and 
thought, you know what, I'm going to see if I can move to his chair mm-hmm. and just be sitting there when he comes back. <laughs> and so I kind of crawled over to his chair. He came back, he's like, how did you get there? And then doctors came in and yeah. my, my um, you know, feeling on my left-hand side came back over a couple of days and I had a bit of physiotherapy to try and regain strength in my left side. And I think even into my teenage years, I used to just trip over my left mm-hmm. foot occasionally. Oh, but yeah. then I took up a lot of sports and yeah. kind of built up strength and and... Now I'm certainly, um, I used to be ambidextrous and mm-hmm. be able to use both hands equally. Yeah. I'm definitely right-handed now and have been since that, yeah. but I have no particular long-term effects from that. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that now that your experience is a fairly commonly recognized side effect of the treatment, I'm assuming there's been some research done on this. And I think you yourself are actually involved in some work around looking at this particular side effect. Yeah, I mean, the side effect definitely isn't common at all. I mean, it's up, up to 1% mm-hmm. of children with ALL, but many researchers and doctors think it's actually lower than that. So I had, uh, maybe five or six years ago now, I had a sort of spare afternoon in the lab where I was working in the UK, and I'd recently met a father of a, of a local leukemia survivor, and he had said, oh, good grief, I, he saw my talk, and he said, oh, I can't believe this happened to you, this also happened to my daughter, too. She was paralyzed from the neck down after that drug, after that terrible drug. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of was thinking, well, this still happens, like 20-something yeah. years later, people are, are still doing this, and I kind of went on PubMed, and I'm like, okay, somebody's got to work this out by now, it can't mm-hmm. just be, you know, this drug causes this, but we don't know how or why or when. And it definitely had been more documented, albeit not that well. well. Um, There had definitely been more cases and people had concluded it was this drug, but nobody had ever looked at a mechanism of action Mm. or even, you know, can we prevent this, which is something we find with a lot of side effects research. It's obviously less prioritized than, you know, actually can we treat the cancer successfully? And so I emailed around a few of my clinical colleagues and said, well, why has nobody done this? What's Mm. going on? And I said, you know, we should be looking at this. Let's treat primary neural cells, you know, mm-hmm. CNS cells with this drug and see what happens. Yeah. So fast forwarding, a uh, long story, I managed to get about $100,000 of personal funding mm-hmm. to do a year project on it. And we grew certain types of central nervous system cells from stem cells and we treated it with this drug and we did RNA-seq on them and we did whole genome methylation on them. And we have some... Uh, Really, really interesting results, which uh, I'm just kind of halfway through writing the paper at the moment. So Mm -hmm. I I think, to my knowledge, this is the first sort of detailed lab mechanistic work that shows why this side effect is likely to happen. So I hope that and other, you know, groups who are also working on it Mm -hmm. can contribute. When we can figure out why this is, maybe we can figure out a way to stop it. Yeah. And it's incredible that it took someone who's lived through that to really do that kind of work that no one's really paid that much attention to it beforehand and you're right you know with side effects I think they often do get overlooked because you're more concerned about you know effectiveness of the actual drug and how well it works um sure I I think it's changing a little bit now pleasingly Mm -hmm. long-term effects particularly are now getting a little more focus and Mm -hmm. the thing is with childhood leukemia when I had it the survival rate was about 70 Mm percent depending on what subtype you had and we're now up to sort of 90 95 percent in developed countries at least and so we can begin to kind of and we know we know the children who aren't going to respond to treatment we know their cytogenetics Mm -hmm. we know who they are and why we need to increase our research into treatments for them but for the rest of the people we Mm -hmm. we 
know what their chances are and so we can now begin looking at less toxic Mm -hmm. treatments and therapies and not even just that but the impact of things like these drugs which you know affect your central nervous system Mm -hmm. on things like mental health and cognition as well and unfortunately the older that people like me get the Mm -hmm. sort of worse the picture becomes in so insofar as what we find out about the impact of treatment on survivors mm-hmm. um some great work here at sick kids actually looking at the you know cognitive effect of, yeah. of this chemotherapy treatment and um you know we need to be doing this because people like me i guess are the first generation mm-hmm. uh who yeah. really are surviving in enough numbers to study us so yeah. i hope this is really used to benefit people who are on treatment at the moment mm-hmm. so dr gupta's part of his work focuses on studying the long term mental health outcomes in cancer survivors. And this area in particular has been understudied, Mm -hmm. I think, in the general area of long-term effects of treatment in childhood cancer. And as both a childhood cancer survivor and currently a cancer researcher, how do you think we can bring more attention to the need to study these effects and the need to address them? Um, How can we go about making sure that these long-term effects, um, and in particular around mental health, are considered important enough to study? Sure. Well, the first thing you need to do is ask survivors what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you ask uh, cancer survivors generally, I, did, I, I asked a lot of them before I did my TED talk on survivorship, what's important to you, they will say mental health almost mm-hmm. universally. So the first thing we need to do is ask the people who our research is hopefully going to benefit. The second thing I think is is mental health research, at least in in many places, UK, Canada, is really now picking up a bit of steam and the stigmas, which still do exist, of course, are slowly being eroded by great campaigns and great organisations, for example, CAMH here in Toronto. That all kind of needs to come together in order to really Mm. make real progress. But also with cancer, of course, I'm not an expert in this area, but especially in children there is two main things is it Mm -hmm. the impact of the therapies such as methotrexate which Mm -hmm. directly gets injected into the you know cerebrospinal fluid and obviously affects neural cells um, in a developing brain is it that or is it the fact that you take a child out of their normal social systems Mm -hmm. there you disrupt a family for you know two and a half to three years Mm -hmm. and that's an incredibly traumatic early life experience and I would guess that it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, for me as a molecular biologist, I like things to be fairly, you know, black and white. For that, we need translational work between psychologists, molecular biologists, uh, mm-hmm. you know, physicists, biophysicists who work on radiotherapy. And then we, we need a lot of different people getting involved to really f- figure out what the causes are of these uh, Mm. side effects and if so how can we intervene at the time to prevent them and how do we look Mm. after survivors post-treatment and actually you know we have we're going to have to change our our medical systems to care for cancer survivors Mm -hmm. better we need specialists we need specialist Mm. psychologists who can go oh you're a childhood cancer survivor right I understand Mm. (laughs) and this is this is what you might be more at risk of this Mm. is how we can help you yeah that's great thank you So maybe we'll end there. And then if people want to, you're a very prolific uh, writer and you're also a TED fellow. So if people wanted to see some of your work or reach out to you, what would be the best way to reach you? Sure. Probably Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a website as well. So if anyone doesn't have Twitter, they can uh, email me through my website. But Twitter is definitely the one where I'm sort of most active on. And if I don't reply, please do tweet me again. (laughs) I generally do miss a few things, especially in busy days on the labs. Of course. Yeah. 
And what's your handle? It's Vicky with three Y's and then an F at the end. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're also doing some clinical trial work for kids with ALL. So are you part of a group of people here who are doing that? Or? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, one of the big reasons why childhood cancer outcomes improved so rapidly and dramatically over the past 40 years is that people realized very early on that there was a big limit to what one hospital could learn, right? Where the biggest pediatric hospital in the country, and we still don't see enough kids with cancer, Mm -hmm. thankfully, on our own to conduct large-scale clinical trials. And so there have been these very large cooperative group trials of multiple institutions formed to conduct some of this research. So in North America, the biggest would be the Children's Oncology Group, and that's over 225 hospitals, not just in Canada and the U.S., but in Australia and New Zealand and some other places as well. And so I'm part of the Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia Committee in the Children's Oncology Group cog, as we call it. And so we're designing the next generation of clinical trials in ALL. And what's really exciting is that these are going to be the first clinical trials in ALL to actually incorporate immunotherapy mm-hmm. in upfront treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be co-chairing one of the two trials that's hopefully going to open in about a year and expect it to accrue sort of 5,000 kids from across North America. What therapy are you guys using? So it's the idea right now is to take standard chemotherapy and randomize it against standard chemotherapy plus an immune therapy called blinatumumab, which is a um, T-cell engager that targets CD19, which is found not just on B-cells, but also on ALL leukemic blasts as well. And that's shown some pretty exciting results in, in the relapse refractory setting, both in adults and in kids. That's exciting. It's super exciting, actually. So I, I want to transition to sort of the third project that you're working on, which I think is really exciting and is more what I guess got you excited in doing this work. So can we talk a little bit about your global work and in childhood cancer care? Sure. So just to prep the scene for that, you know, I just finished talking about these amazing 80 plus percent cures that we have in Mm -hmm. Canada and the US. But if you take all children globally with cancer, 80% of those kids actually don't live in the developed world. They live in low and middle income countries where cure rates are much less and sometimes dramatically less. So the question... that's something that sort of people don't really realize. I think people think, why would we put money into treating kids with cancer when infectious disease is maybe more prevalent or is it even more prevalent? Well, and that's the assumption, but I think what a lot of people find counterintuitive, and it's a good news story, right, is that the burden of childhood mortality attributable to infectious disease in low-middle-income countries has dramatically descended over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. And if you think about it, the leading cause of disease-related death in children in North America is cancer. So that's the natural state isn't the right word, but, you know, when you take infectious disease out of the picture or predominantly out of the picture, that's the next cause, right? And so... You know, the stats are a little bit unreliable because you can imagine that accurate diagnosis is a problem as well. But there are plenty of middle-income countries right now where childhood cancer is actually easily in the top three causes Mm. of childhood mortality, especially in the, say, sort of 5 to 14-year-old range, if not the top cause already, you know, in countries like China, Mexico, Brazil. And you can imagine how large their pediatric populations are, Mm -hmm. are, if not they're already very close to being in that category. So there's a imperative to try to figure out how to adapt those systems 
to treating childhood cancer, which is a very different type of system that you'd need than, say, to decrease malarial or pneumonia or diarrheal death in kids, where prevention is a huge aspect. We don't really know how to prevent childhood cancer. That's not an option for the vast majority of childhood cancers. And where a lot of the treatment in the infectious disease category is at the primary community level. That doesn't really work for childhood cancer. So it's a really different way of trying to attack childhood mortality. Primary level meaning going to your family physician. Exactly, right? No family physician in the world is equipped to treat childhood cancer, right, in any system. And so it's trying to figure out how to adapt systems to that new challenge. Now, the good news is there's plenty of amazing clinicians and advocates and policymakers in the developing world who have done that already or to some extent or another. The question is to figure out what works, what makes sense, what's most cost effective, and how do you actually scale that up to make a difference at a population level in these various jurisdictions? Right. So, you know, childhood cancer the death rates in these countries are a lot higher than in North America and Canada and the US and the developed world. But is that a problem of access to care? Is that a problem of knowledge behind the disease? What? It, where is that coming from? Multifactorial. So yeah. all of that and more. So factors include things like inaccurate diagnosis. You know, if mm. you live in rural India and you have two weeks of fever and feeling unwell and lethargy or pale, you're probably going to get diagnosed with malaria or with some sort of infection and no one will ever figure out that you actually have leukemia, for example. So the right? time to diagnosis would be a lot longer. Right. So yeah. presenting at advanced stages diagnosis, having access to treatment. You know, we're lucky enough to live in a country where we, for the most part, don't worry about having to pay for your treatment when you're in the hospital, right? It's a much different situation for most families where, okay, here's the chemotherapy that we think will work to cure your child. It costs X amount, right? And as long as Um, it's administered at the hospital, that's paid for here. Here, whereas there would be go out and buy your drugs and and come back to us, right? In, In many places, even if a family has the money, do you actually have access to the drug? Is there a stable supply? You know, there's higher rates of toxicity. Do you have the right support of care? So there's multiple, multiple, multiple factors. So it's a, a, a challenge. Issue, right? yeah. I think what I always compare to, though, as well, is that, you know, people were having these conversations about pediatric HIV in mm. low and middle income countries 25 years ago, right? Where all these arguments about it's too complex, the medications are too expensive, it requires too many changes in the healthcare system, this mm-hmm. isn't going to work, and all of that turned out not to be true, right? Mm-hmm. It just needed to, to be tackled yeah, with enough effort and advocacy. Yeah. Exactly, right? And so in a lot of us sort of think of childhood cancer in that sort of same rubric as well. Yes, the challenges are immense, but there is lots of on-the-ground evidence of people who have successfully overcome those challenges. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of your work is actually focused on influencing policy and trying to make that a priority for those countries on, I guess, the national level of the country. Yeah, right? so and, and so you can imagine there's a lot of different type of research or data that are necessary to do that, right? So, you know, it's hard to convince a policymaker that problem X is a burden if you don't actually have numbers sure. as to how much, right? And, you know, policymakers, this is at all the way I was trained to think as a clinician, right? But, you know, often policymakers' next question is, okay, that makes sense. So how much is it going to cost to treat it? Well, I don't know, right? Even in North America, you know, most of us, myself included, if you ask me right now, how much does it cost to treat childhood cancer in Canada? Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't know, right? We just do. Yeah. But that's probably not a good enough answer, especially in those contexts, right? So if a policymaker is saying, okay, 
sure, you've shown me that that's a burden, but so are these 10 other disease entities or so are... Why should this one be a priority? Why should this one be a priority and where am I getting the most bang for my buck? Now, the good news is that there's a really good argument to be made for childhood cancer in that realm and some of the preliminary work that we have done looking at costs has shown that these are very cost-effective interventions actually even in low middle-income countries we being the group so at your chair of perk here at sick right the, so the, that's the unit for policy and economic research in childhood cancer you have no idea how long we spent throwing around different acronyms, acronyms. And things <laughs> like that but, yeah. so myself my colleagues avi denberg uh, who's here sue horton who's a economist and with lots and lots of collaborators around the world. Those are the kinds of studies that we have been doing and are continuing to pursue. And so you're also the associate chair of the Lancet Oncology Commission yeah. for Sustainable Pediatric, pediatric Care. Cancer. And so that's very much a big collaboration between a few centers who are driving it, but lots of collaborators around the world who are contributing as well. And the idea is basically to get as much of this data together and collect new data to convince policymakers about this is what should happen. So, you know, what is the current burden of childhood cancer in these jurisdictions? What's it going to be 15 years from now? If we do nothing, how many kids are going to die of cancer in these jurisdictions in the next 15 years? If we did something, and if we did these specific things, how many kids would we save? What would that cost? What would the cost-benefit then be in terms of lives saved and the benefit Mm -hmm. to economies? Which, again, parallels very closely some of the efforts that the HIV world did 25 years ago, right? This is how many people are going to die of HIV if we do nothing. This is how much it would cost to do something and how many lives we would save productive we did years, yeah. exactly um, and that became a rallying cry for a lot of advocates around the world and a lot of stakeholders that was then by the passion of the community able to translate into actual policy change and new initiatives around the world so the pie in the sky goal is to have this commission and the data it generates be sort of a catalyst to those kind of efforts that are already going on, but even giving them more ammunition to ramp up further. Sure, yeah. So can you give maybe an example of a study that you've done where you actually showed how cost-effective it was? Yeah, so, you know, myself and some colleagues, Sue Horton, for example, and others as part of this commission, worked with a woman called Lorna Renner. She's the main pediatric oncologist in the Korlebu Hospital in Accra, Ghana. Mm-hmm. And so basically what we did is, with fairly simple methodology, I have to admit, you know, just calculate how much did it cost to run the childhood cancer treatment unit in that pediatric hospital for one year, right? Mm-hmm. Every part of it, you know, from the lab test to the medication to the salaries of the doctors, the nurses, the secretaries, the janitors, like everything, So you costed out the amount it would take to treat a child for a year. So it wasn't yeah. one child, it, it was, was the entire the center, oh, okay. right? Yeah. So it was conceptualizing the intervention as the actual running of the cancer unit, right, and all aspects of it. And then with that figure, along with how many cases do you see a year and what are your survival rates, mm-hmm. you can actually come up with cost-effective amounts. And, you know, I won't bore you guys with the full methodology, but there are sort of accepted thresholds for how you consider an intervention cost-effective, very cost-effective not cost-effective, and this met very cost-effective threshold criteria, essentially. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is that the cost per life year saved was actually very similar to what they've shown in that part of the world for things like cervical cancer, breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as an example of what hopefully will come out of these kind of data, 
you know, Lorna and other stakeholders in Ghana are using this to try to advocate with their Ministry of Health because there is a national health insurance scheme, so universal health coverage in Ghana, but it only covers certain conditions. Like screening for cervical cancer. And one of the only things they, I think... It's either breast or cervical. One of the two is covered, I believe. And I think prostate cancer is covered as well, I think. But that's it. And certainly no childhood cancers are covered. But these kind of data, Lorna and her colleagues can now take to the Ministry of Health and say, look, we've shown that it is just as cost effective to treat childhood cancer. Just as cost effective as screening? Screening plus treating. Wow. Yep. Just the treatment alone for childhood cancer is just as cost effective. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Which if you think about, first of all, up until the last five or seven years, there have been really no new drugs in childhood cancer, right? Like we went from 20% cure rates in acute lymphoblastic leukemia to 85, 90% cure rates in acute lymphoblastic leukemia without any new drugs. It was just learning how to use them Mm -hmm. better, right? So the vast majority of these drugs, there's no patents or anything like that, right? They're generic. Exactly. So the costs are generally quite low. The success is pretty good. And to put it crudely, think of how many productive life years you get from saving a six-year-old mm-hmm. with leukemia as opposed to a 70-year-old with prostate cancer, mm-hmm. right? There's moral cases for both, but if you're going to put things in an economic term, In numbers, yeah. You know, you get a lot more bang for your buck generally by saving the six-year-old who has another 60, 70 years of contributing to society ahead sure. of him or her. Hey, listeners, it's Kat again. We all know that healthcare can get very expensive. But the study conducted by Dr. Gupta and his colleagues at the Korlebu Teaching Hospital in Ghana aimed to dispel the misconception that low- and middle-income countries are unable to afford childhood cancer treatment. Dr. Gupta and his team evaluated the costs of running one of the largest childhood cancer treatment centers in sub-Saharan Africa, and when comparing this cost to cost-effectiveness guidelines set by the World Health Organization, they found that treating childhood cancer in this setting is actually very cost-effective. But how did they do this? First, all costs associated with running the treatment center were calculated. This includes the cost of the medical and non-medical staff, costs of services like imaging and radiation, hospital administration and utilities, and even room and board for patients and their families. Although not all of this information was available at Corlebu, using data collected in similar low- and middle-income settings as estimates, the total operating costs came out to $1.7 million U.S. dollars per year which equals to roughly 9700 US dollars for every newly diagnosed patient. The second step was to calculate the cost effectiveness of this center by combining the cost of a new cancer diagnosis with its 5-year survival rate. With this calculation, the cost per life saved was about 27000 US dollars. But childhood cancer and its treatment can have a number of long-term effects, so the cost per life saved is adjusted to something called a dolly. This stands for Disability Adjusted Life Year. This metric is defined by the WHO as one lost year of healthy life. So a dolly is a way to not only measure disease mortality, but to also account for the burden of disease, which as we heard, can be quite large when it comes to childhood cancer. The third step then was to calculate the cost per dolly averted, or how much it costs to prevent or avert disability due to the disease. After some complex calculations, the cost per dolly averted was just over a thousand US dollars. How does this number stack up against other settings? The World Health Organization defines cost-effective interventions as those that cost less than the per capita income for each dolly averted. 
Now, the most recent estimates for Ghana's per capita income is approximately $1,500. Compared to the $1,000 cost of one averted DALI, it's clear that the treatment of childhood cancer is very cost-effective in this sub-Saharan setting. And although the results of this cost-effectiveness analysis are very encouraging, it is important to remember that this doesn't mean that treatment is affordable, particularly in Ghana, where childhood cancer treatment is not covered by the National Health Insurance Program, the considerable financial burden of treatment often falls on the families and patients. More information on the cost-effectiveness of childhood cancer treatment can help inform advocacy efforts and decision-making when it comes to setting healthcare priorities, and can help to ensure that countries with limited resources are truly getting the most bang for their buck. So this data is used for policy to inform policy for advocacy groups. What does the advocacy do in these countries? Where What is their next step? Do you just hand the data off to them and then they go off and they yeah, try to... I mean, in the childhood cancer world, and I think that there's probably true in most places, and again, I haven't been meaning to, but I keep making reference to the HIV movement, right? Like, what was the catalyst behind the HIV movement? It really wasn't doctors or politicians, right? It was patients, right? The people and the families who were most effective and around the world, both in high-income countries and in low-middle-income countries, it's generally parent groups that are the main advocates, right? And there's examples of that from Guatemala to Philippines to China to pick your place. So it's, I think, empowering those grassroots societies to have the data to complement the passion and the advocacy that they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. That's how stuff gets done at the policy level most of the time when you have passionate people who are making an argument. And if you can back that up with the data to show that, hey, this is the moral thing to do, this is the ethical thing to do, and it actually makes a lot of cost-effective mm -hmm. sense to do as well, mm -hmm. then people tend to be pretty receptive to that, hopefully, anyways. And how much more effective is what you're doing than, I think they call it twinning, where a hospital in sort of a first world country will pair with yeah, um, so, a hospital? So I think there are different goals, right? Okay. So I think they can be very complementary. The twinning model has been what most people in pediatric oncology have used so far, and there's huge successes from that, right? Here at SickKids, we have essentially a twinning program with seven centers in the English-speaking Caribbean that I'm a part of and that other people here launched. There's examples of twinning programs in Central America. That was the one I was involved mm -hmm. in, but that's run by St. Run. That was initiated by some folks in Monza, Italy, and then by the folks at St. Jude's and in the U.S. as well. And, you know, cure rates have gone up dramatically because of those programs, right? Um, and essentially, you're just sharing your knowledge of, yeah, so of treatment and possibly resources. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we always like to say that it kind of goes both ways because we, Benefit you know, from that. Yeah. totally. And, and also, you no one knows the local context better than the local physician, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. The problem becomes, you know, I always say, so there's this great example of a twinning relationship between a university and oncology department in the Netherlands and this childhood cancer unit in, I think it's in Yogyakarta in Indonesia, right? And they've done amazing stuff. Cure rates have gone up dramatically because of the hard work of people in both centers, right? And that's great. The problem becomes that there's probably 200 other hospitals in it's Indonesia just a one -to -one. Yeah. Right, that could benefit from the exact same thing. And there aren't 200 more amazing pediatric hospitals. Exactly, yeah. right? That, are, that have People the time or the resources to, kids, to do that, yeah. right? So the question is, how do you actually 
take interventions and move them beyond a specific twinning model or a specific center and more to a population level across jurisdiction to raise the cure rates in a full population. And the lessons from twinning are important in that, but twinning alone is not going to do that. And that's why you need this policy. And, and that's where your work comes in. Right. Yeah. Awesome. But, but so yeah, I would I would look at them as very much complementary. So we want to make treating childhood cancer a global priority. And have you done any sort of science communication around that? Where I think you mentioned that you had contributed to the WHO's. Um, yeah. Bid. So how I've not first got involved in international, but more got involved in this sort of policy and economic sphere was when I was invited to lead the chapter on childhood cancer in something called the Disease Controls Priority Project. Um, and for people who don't know what that is. Yeah, which is most people. Yeah. Um, it's a co-initiative of a few people, including the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, the Fogarty Center, and others. And it started a few decades ago. And the idea was basically to identify the best buys, essentially, right? The most cost-effective, biggest bang for your buck kind of health interventions mm-hmm. for policymakers in low-middle-income countries to then be able to run with. And over a couple of editions, this was the third edition that I was involved in, it sort of grew and in this most recent iteration things that were previously chapters got exploded into full volume so Mm -hmm. instead of there being a cancer chapter there was a cancer volume and I was asked to lead the childhood cancer chapter within this volume and that was oh gosh probably five or six years ago now that that process started but that was very much the you know I gave my spiel to the other chapter authors and the editors about yeah this is why childhood cancer should be treated and demographic transition and good cure rates and all this sort of stuff and all these great people around the table like yeah that makes a lot of sense how much does it cost well, i don't yeah. know right well how like how do you actually organize a health system to do that well, i don't know that either right? what are the and, health systems right now right yeah. and yeah. so that was my first sort of introduction to like huh you know it's easy for me to not easy it is important for people to say these are the causes of treatment failure of leukemia in central america or in the caribbean or what have you and that's super important information but that's not the only information that is needed it's not to yet be a able best to buy do, right yeah Exactly. So that was sort of my first introduction to it. Luckily, they were very receptive to the theoretical arguments in the absence of data. So they did actually agree to include treatment of certain childhood cancers in the volume by you uh, made it in there yeah we did well it's funny because the cancer volume like these are the seven best buys in cancer right and like cervical cancer screening right and all those you know hpv vaccine i think was one of them hbv vaccine was one of them i think you know there are a couple of other ones and then treatment of select childhood cancers got in there as well. But like we were very frank, right? It was theoretical. Yeah. I mean, like there wasn't a lot of data to be able to say, but you could. Uh, but in volume four. We'll have much more data. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Okay. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your upcoming projects or future plans. You have all this data now. And so what are your next steps? Are you done? Can you quit? At- yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Retiring at this ripe old age. Um so there's a couple of things. So, you know, if I take all of those three things separately, so the clinical trial will hopefully launch in the next year or so, and that's the efforts of dozens and dozens and dozens of people, most of whom are far more senior than I am and a lot more experienced than me. But that's going to be great when that finally opens as well. In terms of the international stuff, you know, it's pursuing more of these health economic and health policy stuff. My colleague Avi Denberg is focusing a lot on mapping of how drug procurement works for childhood cancer drugs in these uh, Mm. areas and you know how that can be optimized or what are the barriers and challenges there yeah to transport 
mm-hmm. the drug even to yeah and even just you know how do you ensure a stable supply and in a lot of places where there isn't one what's contributing to that and then from the health services research you know i gave you a couple of examples of the kind of studies we're doing we just got a grant from cihr to look at the long-term physical outcomes not of the childhood cancer survivors but of the family members as well and you know does having gone through all this stress does that increase your risk of cardiovascular or other types of morbidity down the road having gone through this major adverse event Um, of course the idea being again from an advocacy point of view right now there are minimal resources for family members during the treatment and certainly none afterwards and so if we find that there are risks that the family members face long term, then that can be a first step to saying, okay, so what sort of programs do we need Mm -hmm. to actually support families, not just during treatment, but afterwards as well. Fantastic. So if people have any questions for you, can they email you, find you on on social media or are you... Email is probably the best. I'm a sort of voyeur on social media as opposed to an active participant. I have my various accounts, but I really don't post very often. Yes. Um, but yeah, anyone should feel free to email me with questions if they like. Okay, perfect. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Sticking with the theme of survivorship and improving health outcomes for people post-cancer treatment, our next episode will feature Dr. Jennifer Jones. She's a senior scientist and director of the Cancer Rehabilitation and Survivorship Program at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Tune in on June 6th to hear her discuss her work as program director and her research on improving quality of life for cancer survivors. Thanks. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Still remember mentioning it to my parents for the first time. Like, so you are a doctor already, right? Like, <laughs> did yeah, you get I your know, license? But yeah. yeah. <laughs>